and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority, an interview podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. My guest for this episode is someone who has an incredible appetite for connecting with others and understanding the world around him. His name is Leo Fuchikami and he is a second generation Japanese Canadian who has found his home in the country that his parents left decades before. But before making it to Japan, he spent time in several different countries, which helped him put his own cultural identity in the context of the migration of people across the world and across generations. This episode, and in fact this entire show, is centred on personal stories, and trust me, Leo is never short of great tales. So make yourself a cup of tea, get comfortable, and enjoy this conversation. We have got a lot to get through. <laughs> so <laughs> shall we start? Do you want to give a little bit of a, uh, I guess, an introduction into who you are and where you're from and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, for sure. And and for those of you who, who don't know me, and, and I think Tao knows me enough to say that this is true, I am a quite a talkative person. So this probably will quite be quite lengthy and there will be interspersed with monologues. Um, so I apologize ahead of time. Um, so my name is Leo Fuchigami, and I am currently uh, living and working in Tokyo, Japan. I am a second-generation Japanese-Canadian. means my both my parents emigrated from Japan. I grew up in uh, mostly, I'd say, Southeast Asian or South Asian, sorry, Southeast Asian and South Asian and Eastern European community. Other than my, uh, my brother in, in high school and middle school, we were the only Japanese students in my middle school, high school. I didn't really meet Japanese or Nikkei. Uh, Nikkei is a term we use to describe uh, the diaspora of Japanese, those who were born overseas or raised overseas. So a lot of my identity, since I I guess that's a big theme, I I kind of expanded it, I guess, to being Asian Canadian, (laughs) More, more than Japanese Canadian, because like, how do you know what that means when you're the only one, or your family is the only one? And your exposure to it is almost like you're a third person, you know, growing up with anime or Japanese drama or Japanese music, but you don't identify it with as much as you might see it as like a hobby, like something you're consuming and learning. Between growing up in Canada and moving to Japan where you're living now, you took quite a few trips elsewhere. Hey. Yeah. um, In university, um, I decided to study Chinese. I did a commerce bachelor in commerce with a specialization specialization in international business. And in in my university, international business required a minimum of basically finishing second year of a target language. So I did you know business in China, some history and culture classes on um, in China, and then um, I went to basically three and a half years of uh, Chinese language classes. So I, I learned the language, and at some point I decided, um, after I did a summer exchange um, in China, which was which is kind of to meet the requirements for that program, the year after the summer exchange, I decided to go backpacking alone. And this is the first time I've ever traveled alone, unless you count me flying to meet my grandparents. I think that's a <laughs> bit of a different situation. Um, but I decided to go backpacking. It was a kind of on a whim thing. And, uh, you know, the first thing I realized is like you know, three and a half, three years around at that point of studying Chinese didn't really help me that much in terms <laughs> of like even ordering food what, or, really? you know, asking for directions. I think it's a very common thing to have spent years learning something, a language academically, and then realizing the application of it is so different. Like you might have maintained a B or an A average in Japanese, but then if you move, and then you move to Japan and you realize like, wow, I can't really even 
you know, order something in the convenience store. I can't understand the instructions. And so I had that whole experience. But uh, one of the first things I did was to volunteer in um, this NGO that was set up in China. It's actually it's set up in Hong Kong because I think at the time there was certain restrictions to setting up NGOs in China. And it was set up by this Japanese gentleman who moved to China. So I kind of went with this delegation of uh, about 19 local university students. What, what the organization was supporting were leprosoriums or leper colonies. So um, basically, I don't remember the exact timeline, but decades ago, you know, it's kind of like the pandemic we have now, there was a pandemic of leprosy. And it was a very infectious disease, or it was perceived to be more infectious than it was actually. Um, and there was no cure. And so the solution at the time was to physically separate people from the cities into colonies, kind of like sister colonies. And, you know, large cities would always have like at least one. It's like not too far away, not too close. And so they'd be isolated there. So it's a kind of quarantine. And these little colonies ended up just becoming the permanent homes for the majority of people who were forced into them. I mean, you can read more about the history. I, I wouldn't do do it justice, but a lot of them didn't actually have leprosy. A lot of them had the symptoms that could be interpreted as leprosy. And leprosy didn't end up being as infectious as was um, feared at the time. But as a result of like so many people being put into these colonies, I think at the peak, there was something like 500 colonies. And I don't know what the numbers are, but that could probably be tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people um, because it's a fairly large country. And so this organization was designed to help support these colonies, uh, mostly socially, because uh, financially, the government is actually providing a stipend to everyone in these colonies, as far as, as, far as I know. So they, they, they could afford the amenities necessary for life, but they uh, were like isolated because if you can imagine at the time, if there are colonies of people who are seen to be infected with a very infectious disease, um, even if you're a family member, you wouldn't go there. It's just not a place to, like, you wouldn't take the risk, right? And, and there's a stigma associated. Anyone from that from that colony, you would you wouldn't even want to be near because you you just see them as like, you know, for your own safety, for your family's safety, you'd stay away from them. So the stigma was like permanently attached, and and leprosy physically manifests. You know, you would lose limbs, you lose fingers, like your skin would it would manifest in, in very visible ways. And so they're socially they have been socially isolated the entire time. Like even now, there's a stigma, um, so you wouldn't you wouldn't just visit them. So anyways, we would these delegations to go there. And I was one of them. I'd say that was my first like travel experience <laughs> as, as an individual was to go and volunteer here. And I spent about a week and a half. I learned a lot of, I mean, this sounds selfish, but I learned a lot of Chinese as a result of being in an area where you could only speak Chinese and all you were doing were like interacting with people. And I think that was the first time I was like forced to really empathize with a group that I had never, like I had no connection with. Um, it was very eye-opening because it, it, like, you realize, okay, we all we all eat, we all like dance and sing and listen to music, we all you know have our lazy moment, like we're all the same, <laughs> like you could be completely on the other side of the world, um, and there are some universal things, and I just realized firsthand, like singing music is one of those universal things. You can't, you cannot even. I, I couldn't really speak Chinese, but I could sing. Pomyo, which is like a very old, famous song in China. And like that song helped me connect with a lot of people or just cooking together or cleaning together and just hanging out, gardening, um, farming, those those kinds of things. So it, it really opened my eyes to like, oh, we as humans are really just 
the same fundamentally. Before you went to China, did you have any sort of expectations? And how do you think those expectations were met or dismantled or changed as you spent time in China? So I can speak to that um, more in sort of the next experience I had. Um, although it also applies to this as well. Sorry, I'm, I'm eating ice cubes if you hear that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, min- I'll minimize that. <laughs> I like to chew on ice cubes. Okay. You're one of those there. people. I am one of those people. Um, so after that trip, I mean, after a few more city stops, because I was I was definitely doing the backpacking thing, I decided to volunteer again. But th- there's a, a um, in Sichuan, um, there was an, a, a pretty big earthquake in 2008. I don't know if most people know this, but uh, and anyone who's lived in an area with a massive natural disaster probably will. It's not something that you kind of just throw money at and then next year it's like back to normal. It takes decades. It's like... You'll look at the timeline of these projects to recover the, you know, building the schools and revitalizing the neighborhood. It's like, here's a 20 year timeline. And we might we might get back to what we were pre pre incident 20 years from now. Um, So I was there a year later and it was like there's still so much to do. So I spent some time to volunteer there. And um, I, I met three these three gentlemen who decided to go and like kind of check up on some projects that they were working on from 2008. And one of them was sort of a uh, representative from an NGO who had helped build a community center. And he was actually there on site, you know, shuttling people back and forth into to like volunteer at the epicenter. And, uh, and he's Japanese. And so at, at the time, the local government, or maybe the federal government had restricted any non, uh, any foreigners from entering the area. Part of it was to like, prevent media coverage supposedly of like how bad the incident really was because there were a lot of schools that had collapsed because of shortcuts in the in the building of those schools when everyone had gone there supposedly to like protect to be the most protected from earthquakes so there, there, there are all these things like that and and he was telling me about how even though they were there to volunteer they faced a lot of you know racism because they, they would be called like ruben guiz which is like Japanese devils. But like over time, they were able to develop relationships with those that they were working with because they were saying, wow, these, they're not even from here. And they're spending every day for months to like rebuild or support. You mentioned when you were volunteering with the earthquake stuff, you met a Korean person or a Chinese person of Korean heritage? Yeah, sorry. So I actually kind of grouped the three gentlemen together, um, which I shouldn't have done. Um, So there, so the three individuals, let's quickly introduce their profiles. One was the, the gentleman doing the, the, the um, representing the NGO, and he had been living in mostly Southeast Asia for at least a decade or so. Another gentleman was actually returning to Japan. He was a um, sort of a traveling photographer, like he was on National Geographic. Some of his photos are on National Geographic from Africa. So he had spent, spent years, and, and his story was that, you know, when he was living in Japan as a typical sort of Japanese student, at one point he saw... A newspaper clipping or a news article or something um, f- about the Rwanda genocide, and he couldn't understand how he would see uh, pictures of, you know, bodies being shoveled by a, a truck in, on another side of the world, and he's just living peacefully in Japan with like without much cares in terms of safety, and so that kind of catalyzed his eventual move to be- become the person that could bring the exposure to these things um, back to Japan and the world. Um, so anyways, he was coming back for, uh, I think there was a showing of some sort in Tokyo. And the third gentleman, um, he was uh, 
what you might call a zainichi, um, Korean, uh, sorry, a Korean Japanese. I don't know if that's the right order, but in, yes, yeah, in English. So ethnically Korean, but raised in Japan. And there's a, there's a fairly sizable minority of Korean Japanese in Japan that uh, either have, in terms of citizenship, they have South Korean citizenship. Some of them might have, through like having a Japanese parent, maybe they were able to get a, a Japanese citizenship. But in his case, he actually had a Choson passport, which is the passport that was issued pr- before uh, North and South Korea split. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him and learn about his experience with racism in Japan, because there is a pretty noticeable, at least in media and in stories and in, in the com- like social justice conversation about anti-Korean sentiment towards those who are born and raised in Japan, to the point where a lot of them have set up their own schools that teach a mixture of, you know, the requirements for local universities, but also Korean culture, Korean history. Um, So they have their own sort of academic institutions and and all the institutions necessary for their community here because they, they feel so much, they've experienced so much racism and been excluded from so many things in, in sort of mainstream society here. And so I learned about that from him and, I, and prior to that, I had no understanding of such a, like, I didn't know about the Korean minority in Japan. I didn't know about the struggles that they had. It was another incident of, like, learning about something that I had no prior understanding of. I'm sure we'll touch on this again later in the conversation, but don't you find it so interesting how China, Korea, and Japan all share so many similarities, and yet at some point in our histories have all really just hated each other? Yeah, it's... It, so I, uh, I realize that that's actually not exclusive to East Asia, though. I feel like that's common around the world, like countries that tend to border each other and are ethnically or religiously similar, but like different. We tend to make enemies of those who are like the most similar to us. And I find that to be really an odd phenomenon. But I mean, I guess it's been repeated over and over again, that it's just part of how like our societies have developed. But but it's it is really weird to think of because you know I I come from a I would say more of a Canadian background having been born and raised there and I look at what I because I lived in Korea as well and worked in Korea and I, I studied Chinese and I lived in uh, sorry I traveled in China and you know if I was to really look at let's say just Japan and Korea they're so similar <laughs> um, like if I compare it to you know what I've been exposed to in South America and North America like Japan and Korea are actually quite similar linguistically you could say they're the closest language to languages to each other. And grammatically, they're almost identical in terms of infrastructure of the cities are very similar as well in terms of their academic structures as well. Like they're, they're kind of very similar. One, one, one was inspired by the other in a lot of ways, but they, they both, you know, historically spoke and wrote Chinese, at least the elite class did. And there's, there's just so many similarities. And yet, and yet there's, there's this history of war and, racism and uh, just kind of like a visceral hatred towards the other that 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 like is almost if you look at it objectively as a snapshot it's like hard to understand sometimes but you know if you if you learn about the history for sure you can you can understand where that comes from so after china you went to korea yeah so um i went to china in 2009 came back i finished my my university degree and then decided to go to Korea. And actually, the motivation to go to Korea 
there's a couple couple reasons, but part of my motivation in Korea was that I kept hearing about how difficult it would be for someone like me to work in Japan because it, it can be difficult to look Japanese and speak a degree of Japanese and be Japanese from the eyes of um, some people, and but not live up to the expectations of like knowing the etiquette and not speaking the language fluently and not understanding the like business customs, those kinds of things. So, so I've actually heard from many people around me that it's extra tough as a second generation Japanese to work in Japan. And so that was part of the decision process. Like, oh, I don't know if I want to, like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know. Like, there's just a negative element to it. There were other elements as well, but I ultimately ended up going to Korea and then I ended up speak, um, teaching in a middle school in the suburbs of Seoul and uh, did that for a year. And honestly, that was one of the most fun times of my life. I made some pretty amazing friends. I kind of embedded myself into the sort of YouTube slash multilingual international community in Seoul. I guess this is when I started to see a pattern in that I would always end up spending time with those who are kind of minorities or ostracized from society or you know the, those who kind of struggle that weren't in the mainstream. In Korea, I actually came to find out that there's quite a large population of Chinese Korean, or like it's actually there's there's different variations of this, but there are, are quite a few ethnically Korean that have Chinese citizenship that have emigrated to Korea to work. And a lot of them work in restaurants and factories. This is a very common story around the world um, in terms of like immigrants working in those kinds of situations. I was like, wow, I didn't, I had no idea. Like you, you hear about how Korea is very, it's mono-ethnic, but the, like there are these, there's a lot of people like that. And a lot of them really struggle because, you know, their families kind of divided between multiple countries. They like their language and culture and citizenship, like they're all mixed and, you know, they're, they're also struggling working in Korea. They're probably making more there and they're able to support their family, but you know, they're, they're not having the easiest time with that situation. And, you know, I learned about this from my Korean friends that would tell me about this, but like, they also said it in a, like, you could tell there's an element of them sort of looking down a little bit on them. And so I, I just, I, I came to realize, wow, in Korea, there are these minorities and, and there, you know, there's, there's stratification of society in terms of, you know, citizenship and, and language and background. And uh, I only learned that because I was, was living there. And I, I spent quite a bit of time there with uh, just just like doing day to day things, and then eventually I just went to and came across this and spent more time to learn more about that. So I in China, you know, in Korea, and then later on in Japan, I came to realize, wow, there's so many of these hidden stories um, of these groups that are, in a lot of ways, they're like the backbone of society as well. Like they're the ones doing a lot of the work, and this is something you hear about in Canada, and the U.S., and probably in New Zealand, Australia as well they're they're there you, you just have to kind of recognize and try to reach out um, and learn more yeah i find it really interesting that there is also that discrimination against people who are ethnically the same but they may not have been born or raised in say korea or china or japan because you also know that in china there's that term of huatiao of people who have grown up outside of china and they're also looked down on. Um, they're kind of seen as less Chinese. And there's a very negative uh, sort of mindset towards people like that, even though the reason that they're overseas is probably because their families tried to give them a better future or whatever reason it is through no fault of their own. Yeah, it, 
the, the equivalent term in Japanese is Nikkei, and I, I grew up with that term in Canada, but it didn't really mean that much. Like it, it it's not a word I would use in day to day in Vancouver with my friends because no one else knew what the word meant. Um, and in my family, you wouldn't use it. So like, it didn't really mean much. But then, like, I learned about the word hua chao when I was learning Chinese and, I, and, and in the context of China. Um, and then in Korea, I learned about the word gyopo, which is equivalent of, of hua chao and Nikkei. It's really interesting to see this. And, and it's, it's not just at this point in my life, but even up till now, you know, the, those terms can be like negative or positive, And it depends on the generation too. For example, uh, I, can, I can imagine that, and I, actually, maybe I'm just making an assumption, but I can imagine hua chao can be negative um so it maybe was more historically negative but you know as as the overseas population gets richer and more successful some of them it, it could also have a positive connotation and again i'm assuming this for chinese because I, I don't know it as well but in japanese that's also the case and in korean gyopos can th- there can be like a cool factor to it like you're oh you're like over you you know you you're overseas and you have like a different style and you have maybe maybe even like a cool accent <laughs> um, and uh, overseas educated. And and so that the term can become, it can, I, I think over time, it can become positive or negative depending on like what's happening in the world. How did you find living in Seoul? Because I, I visited Seoul a couple of years ago for like four days and I loved it. And I always thought, man, it would be <laughs> so cool to like even live there one day. But what was it really like for you? Seoul is an amazing city. I love Seoul. If I was there maybe 30 years ago, it'd be very different. But it was very, very developed, very convenient, very safe. It also can be quite international, especially within the Korean context. It's very international. But I think that the biggest thing that I came out of that was I love this place and I could live here for several years, but I don't think I could live here forever. Like it's not a place that I would have and settle down and have a family. But, you know, at that age, in my 20, young 20s, and, you know, you, you get to the party, the lifestyle, uh, the access to delicious food, the variety of, you know, things. It's just, it's a great, it's a great place you know, I, I think there are a lot of people these days are drawn to Korea because of K-pop and, and, and media. Um, but there's a lot more than than that. You know, the people are, they can be quite warm, like once you get past a certain stage. <laughs> like, I think that's probably true for a lot of lot of cultures and a lot of places, but um, they, they can really be warm and inviting um, once you kind of break down that initial barrier. Yeah. So you've spent time in both China and Korea. Were there ever instances where, because with the sort of history in that area of the world, were you ever confronted with the effects of Japanese imperialism? In sort of uh, objective conversation. I I think I've never gotten to the stage where there was sort of an emotional, sort of visceral hatred, that that kind of thing. I'm quite lucky because I, I come from I've been born and raised in Canada and I identify as Canadian and so in conversation it's almost always obvious that I am coming from the conversation as a Canadian so it might it might be very different if I was seen as just Japanese I, I don't think you should attribute uh like it, it should be passed down across three or four generations uh something that your ancestors ha- have done to you as an individual but that can just emotionally be how someone feels even if they you know logically don't see it that way. In, in my case, it was just easier to have even more separation because I'm, I just identify as Canadian. And in conversation, I think I come across that way. I've had conversations where I would be explicitly told by my coworkers in Korea, for example, like, 
yeah, if you were Japanese, I would have a lot of difficulty with the situation, but you're not, you're Canadian. And so uh, it was the conversations that we've had about history um, and about differences have always been academic or mm-hmm. objective. So, uh, objective is probably not the right word, but yeah, academic. And so I guess conversations around those topics don't really make you feel uncomfortable? No, I, I don't think so. And I, I try not to be avoidant of even the most controversial things. So I, I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time I wouldn't go so far as I'm saying I like I've read like a lot of book books on Japanese imperialism from the perspective of the other side because I think some of those are written in only those languages. That would probably be the greatest extent is like to really read what is the Korean perception in Korean written in Korean of the colonial period or Chinese perception. You know, um, so I haven't gone that far, but I've you know I've tried to spend quite a bit of time on Wikipedia reading about you know imperialism, Japanese imperialism in different parts of Asia. So I try to stay educated, but to be honest, like I like culture and language in the sort of current social younger generation context. And so I spend a lot more time, a disproportionate amount of time learning the language as a, as a means of being empathetic. So where did your journey go then following Korea? Yeah. So after Korea, I kind of took an interesting turn. I actually became a little bit sort of tired or exhausted of, or uh, disillusioned almost of like East Asian culture in a lot of ways, because it's, um, or, or more specifically like Japanese Korean culture in that it was like great. And um, I had so much fun, but it felt uh, very cold, like emotionally not connecting with people in a certain way that I like, I noticed that more being out of Canada for a long time. And, and this is a huge stereotype, but I, I did feel like this cold versus warm culture thing. And I was missing the warm culture element. And I had also around this time learned more about my own history, my own family history. And uh, it turns out that my great grandfather emigrated from Japan to, uh, originally it was Brazil, but then he ended up going into Peru. And then he had a family there. <laughs> like my, my grandfather was born in Peru in a city called Chiclayo. And they established a business. It was very successful. Um, eventually, they moved back to Japan. It was really interesting how that just, we didn't talk about that in my family. It was just brought on me at some point in my like 20s. So I was like, oh, okay, I have, family, I have a family history in Peru of all places. And also, my, my, my mother had remarried in her third marriage. She and my fourth brother was sort of the fourth brother was born, and he's half Costa Rican because uh, his father is Costa Rican. So I actually had family in terms of like having a stepbrother in Costa Rica. And I was always drawn to the warmth and the liveliness of what I saw as like the warm culture in, in Latin America. So I, I was like, well, why don't I, you know, see what that's about when I can, you know, learn more about my family history and actually meet some of my family there. First was Costa Rica. And uh, I, I got to spend time living at my stepbrother's home. One of the things that we got to do when we were there was they asked me to help deliver plantains, which is like a kind of banana um, plantains and other vegetables to the other side of the country in this little like raggedy truck um, to sell it in a farmer's market. Because it's it's quite common to take agricultural goods from like the poorer side of the country and then sell it on the farmer's market on the richer side of the country. And so I was like in this truck and it was like so much fun. It like broke down twice as we were going there. And I ended up sleeping in the truck because that's, that's the best way to save money. And, and so anyways, we did this. Oh, the trip itself was, sorry, I slept in the truck in the farmer's market. We didn't, it didn't take days to get there. 
Um, so like the whole process was amazing to me because they would just go to these farms and the farmers would just have piles of like plantains, for example, on the side of the road with a sign on it that has a price. And it would say like, you know, per pound or per kilogram or whatever the pricing was. And then they would just take it and they wouldn't like pay the, they wouldn't pay the money. They would just take the plantains and then, and then like after selling it in the marketplace, come back and pay them back. So I was like, wow, this is such a, I couldn't imagine this in Canada. That's a lot of trust. Uh, I couldn't imagine (laughs) a lot. Yeah. A lot of trust. But I mean, there's a relationship already established between them and I'm sure there was some prior communication. Um, so anyways, we went on this truck, went to the side. And when I was when I was there, we ended up having dinner. I think it was at, at a Chinese restaurant in the area. And I remember like one of the most distinct memories I had was this, was a, this restaurant because the gentleman who worked there, I was a Chinese gentleman. We ended up having a conversation. And, and I think he had very few customers that spoke Chinese, given where he was. Um, so he was enthusiastic to, to have, you know, the limited conversation that we could have. But he ended up sharing a story of his family, which was that, he came from the Canton province, and so he spoke Cantonese and immigrated for economic reasons to Costa Rica, you know, for, for his family, for, for his job, at, for work, and created this restaurant eventually. And, you know, was able to afford at that point to send his kids to Beijing for their education when they were quite young to live with his, um, with their grandparents or grandma. So he was telling me about, like, how his, his, like, situation and how, how, it's so weird how life is. And, and because his children had Costa Rican citizenship and grew up partly in Costa Rica, but then they're mostly now spent their life in Beijing. So they spoke Mandarin and very little Cantonese, relatively speaking, and some Spanish. And But he doesn't speak Mandarin because he never lived in, in, in a Mandarin-speaking part of the country. Um, so he was like saying, it's really strange situation to to like not be able to communicate fluently with my own children. As a result of trying to help you know better their life prospects and and that they're growing up in china with as costa ricans in terms of citizenship like i was like wow your story is amazing like you you created this whole opportunity for your children but but he's struggling as a result of that to connect with his own with his own children my you know family and friends that i was with to to go on this trip to sell these goods at the farmer's market they kept making a lot of anti-chinese jokes throughout this whole meal and um, even after it was actually tough to watch because I, they're not people I don't know. Like I, they're family, <laughs> and I realized how much the you know Chinese immigrants were probably struggling in in Costa Rica and other parts of Latin America. You know, they're working really hard, but they're really looked down upon. I don't know. I obviously can't compare, but it would probably be quite a similar experience to the early Chinese settlers who I don't know ended up in like North America and also New Zealand and Australia as well. Just people constantly seeing them as outsiders regardless of how hard they're working how much they're contributing to society and the economy yeah it helped me realize to an extent the stories that i had heard about the earlier generations of uh, japanese immigrants to canada and u.s in this is a pretty i think it's like a, a north american japanese Nikkei term because I don't know if others outside of North America recognize it, but the there's like Nikkei, which is again the Japanese equivalent of Hocha. Um, Nikkei is split into two categories actually. There's Nikkei and then there's Shin Nikkei. Shin is like Shin in Chinese, the same thing, it's new. So like the new generation Nikkei and then the old generation Nikkei. And the old generation Nikkei is pre basically pre war, pre World War II. So the families and individuals that 
can be traced to, to immigration from that period, and then those who came after, because the experience that people have had is so different between those two. Those who came before the war experienced, you know, in in the U.S., there there are actually internment camps, and in, in in Canada as well, um, and so they they experienced the loss of their civil liber- liberties as citizens of these countries. Um, the loss of their property, which is usually just auctioned off. And so they, they came back to a society that didn't accept them. They had stripped them of their rights and stripped them of their property and assets. And then those who came afterwards, especially those who came afterwards, like my generation. And so my parents came in the 80s when J- Japan was kind of cool. Like all of a sudden Japan is envied and, you know, people wanted to learn more about Japan, which is the complete opposite experience of those who came in earlier generations where you would hide that you were Japanese because, like if you spoke Japanese and you you gave off any sort of Japanese, like if you're proud of it, like you you, you were considered the enemy. And so uh, I only really experienced the sort of shinniki experience, right? Which is where it's like the, the, the epitome of that, which is we were, I was raised when Japanese culture was cool and we were recognized as a world power. Sorry, we, I mean, Japan was recognized as a world power. So I never really had stories of people who like really struggled upon immigrating and, 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 like among my friends in that way and like really just spending time with him, like maybe understand how others might've experienced immigration in in, in previous generations. And, you know, I kind of hate that it took me until this point to really feel that way because a lot of the kids around me in high school, they probably did struggle in very similar ways or their families did, but I was just a kid. I didn't really like see those. I didn't really hear, I didn't really care enough um, to, to learn, but like this, this conversation really hit me. Yeah. I mean, what do we yeah. really know as children anyway? Yeah. I mean, I still feel like I'm a kid in a lot of ways, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think in your notes that you sent me, you also mentioned, uh, you, you did go to Pre- uh, Brazil, right? As well. And there's quite a yeah. large Japanese population in Brazil too. There is. Um, so actually the Brazil trip was on a, was on a, another trip. So I went I, back uh, two years later and I, I really wanted to go to Brazil, specifically Sao Paulo, because I had learned about how the biggest population of uh, the Japanese um, diaspora is in, is in Sao Paulo. I believe the number is around 1.5, maybe 2 million people can have, you know, trace their lineage to Japanese immigration. And one thing that I found really, really interesting in both Brazil and Peru is the word Nikkei, which I kept using throughout this this podcast, but that term means nothing in Canada, but it's a basically universally recognized word in Peru and Brazil. If I say like, I'm Nikkei, people will understand that means, oh, you're of Japanese descent. Like it's that common of a term because the Japanese population um, has, you know, been there for so long and it's been sizable enough that that term is, is recognized as an identity, um, probably most of the time. And so my trip to Peru and Brazil, part of it was just to travel and have fun and learn Spanish. But another part of it was to go and actually see what is the Japanese community look like? What are, the, what are their lives in Lima and in Sao Paulo specifically? What I didn't expect was that in going to these places, I could just as easily be seen as a fellow Nikkei born and raised in Peru or Brazil. And so I wouldn't immediately be seen as a tourist or foreigner. Whereas when I, when I was in Costa Rica or Ecuador, I was clearly a tourist. I was clearly a non-Ecuadorian or clearly a non-Costa Rican. But in Brazil and Peru, and this isn't just for Jap- people of Japanese descent, especially in Brazil, you can look like anyone 
and you can be seen, you won't immediately be seen as a foreigner because it's such a diverse, you know, multi-ethnic country that like, it's, it's very inclusive in that way. It's, there's, there's definitely racism, but like, it's inclusive in that anyone can be seen as a local without that immediate reaction of like, oh, they don't look like us. That being said, there's an element of like, I had to accept that their version of, uh, the, in certain cultures, it's like, it's just different. What, what is considered racism or not is different. Um, so I'll give you one really clear example. The word for Asian in, in Spanish is basically is Chino, which basically you could probably guess, but it means Chinese. And so I would be called a Chino or, you know, a woman would be called a Chino or Chinita. And the former president of Peru, who is a second generation Japanese, his name is Alberto Fujimori, he was called El Chino. Like that was his nickname. In the news, you would call your own president the Chinese, like if you were to literally translate it. And he's Japanese in origin. So like if you take the at face value, you know, your sort of cultural upbringing and understanding of what's politically correct from Canada and the U.S., sorry, in my case, Canada, like, and I just looked at that, I'd be like, how could you accept that? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That's so racist. Like, it's just, I'm being yelled at on the street. Like, hey, Chino, come over here. Basically, if I translate the Spanish to the English. And like, I was like, I'm shocked. I couldn't believe that. And that's just one example. I'm just giving you like a very common, easily explainable one. Um, but like, that's just part of the whole culture. You can't just claim everyone's racist and say that like, they're all wrong. There's just some adaptation that's necessary. And for me, that like, oh, like racism is not the same. <laughs> there's, there's some understanding you have to, like, you have to really understand the, the language and the culture and the history to put it in context, which can be that this isn't meant to be racist. It can definitely be used that way, but you, you can't just take things at face value. And that was, for me, that was a really funny example because I was like, wow, as a Canadian who, who didn't know anything, I would have immediately been horrified by that. But it's just part of the experience when you're there. Do you think that there's potential, because you know how language shifts over time and everything like that, do you think there's potential for that to change as well as people... I don't know. I think people's sort of tolerance of racism and understanding of racism is probably better now than it's ever been before. Do you think language can change as well to match that? Yeah, I think I think so. I think there's it will not change in the same way or to the same extent because between languages or cultures, there's it's just built in. For for example, you know, genders are built into a lot of languages. You, you, certain objects are feminine or, or masculine. And so, like, when you take the explicit way of how to communicate in English and, like, remove certain genders or speak to certain genders in certain ways, and then you try to translate that into a language where genders are, like, used very differently, it's built in differently. Um, I don't actually know how to reconcile that. Um, so it may never actually be reconciled because I don't think you can change the whole language. Tell me how you came to the decision then to move to Japan? Because you were saying earlier that you didn't feel like you were maybe ready to move to Japan. Yeah. Well, I think I've, there's a part of me that's always wanted to live and work in Japan to, for, for some period of time. I played with the idea at various times, but I think at this point, which is 2014, after having traveled to all these other countries and even living in Korea and, and almost like living for a period of time in Peru, and I have lived in Japan. Uh, and I also felt like I could you know, maybe my other languages can improve more than my Japanese. And I, I just felt like there's there's a lot of reasons for me to go and you know actually experience Japan that I, the way I've always wanted to. 
the other elements of it was, uh, you know, if I didn't go now, there's a chance I might not ever be able to because I might end up settling down. And it's really hard to move to another country once you have a home and a car and kids. And so I thought, why not take this opportunity? And so I flew to Japan. I initially came with the intention of only staying for a year and a half. It's now been six and a half years. And that, that's for a reason. I, I, like, I've, I love Tokyo. I love Japan. I, what I have here, um, I, I didn't have any idea. I would, I would just be able to create what I needed to be happy, which is I needed uh, you know, you know, your network of friends. You need, you need a social element, a meaningful job that hopefully affords you the things you need in life, which is like maybe a home and I don't have a car, but like it could be a car, it could be ability to travel once a year. And I also uh, feel really connected to the culture. And uh, I feel like I'm much more, uh, like I, I can do more here as a, as a contributor to society and humanity than I could in anywhere else, actually. So I, I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time. You know, coming here, um, and having had those experiences in South America and East Asia, those were all like independent sort of experiences. I think it all kind of came together as a narrative really in Japan. And part of that was because I learned about all these ways to self-identify and the kind of communities that exist here that are based on cultural identification. So I knew the term Nikkei, and of course I knew the term Japanese uh, or Canadian or Japanese Canadian. But I, I learned about like the larger sort of Zainichi, which is when you're in Japan and your ethnic background is from somewhere else, whether you were immigrated or your, your parents were or your family were. Um, and then there's a large group of, of people who, who identify as like half or hafu or mixed or third culture kids. Um, and then there's uh, groups of people who would have gone to international school. So they, they even though they may have only lived in you know, worked here, they, they, they identify with like an international identity. And then there's kikokushijo, which is another term. I don't know if there's an equivalent one in Chinese, but kikokushijo is someone who has probably gone to, you know, the elementary school, maybe middle school here, and then high school and university or just university overseas, and then came back. So someone who did part of their studies overseas and then returned um, to work here. And so like there was so many of these sort of sub communities, if that's the right term, of different kinds of mixed I, mixed culture that was like Japanese plus something. I, I just came to really see diversity in Japan. And I really started to connect with, with that because growing up as basically the only Japanese family in the area, you, like I said earlier, you, I couldn't really, you don't really define what it means to be mixed culture of Japanese and Canadian when you're the only one and you kind of absorb into the larger group of Asian Canadian, which is what I did. But coming to Japan, I started it like the narrative all coming together was like, wow, I actually identify with the diaspora, like the whole diaspora of Japanese, like overseas. I feel like I'm part of the story of emigration and immigration from Japan for the last four generations, specifically, because it started with my great grandfather moving to Peru, grandfather moving back to Japan, my then his parent, his his uh, children moving to Canada, U.S., and then me moving in a way to like Peru and then back to Japan. And there's this circular, you know, migration that's happening. Actually, not just with with me, but there's a lot of that happening between Brazil and Peru. It became very meaningful 
for me to identify with not what I grew up with, which was again, Asian Canadian, but the whole migration of people for the last century, <laughs> like you sort of just empathize with like, wow, that's the story of the world. That's the story of humanity is people move from one place to another. And, you know, the same struggles exist, have existed and they continue to exist and it's going to continue to happen maybe even more than in the past. And you really just start to, I don't know, I think, I, I think I've at least uh, like conceptually started to identify with more and more groups and that includes those who are born in Japan and raised here from other countries and those who've like spent time overseas and those who've emigrated and whose families um, have Japanese ancestry, but like they moved back. So like, I've, I've just become much more open-minded about what groups I identify with. You start to see how connected everything and everyone is at a sort of like a broader, more global level, but also like the pull of heritage like there's something that kind of always brings us back to where we're from for sure i you know in ways that sometimes you can be conscious of in ways that you are like you don't know how it how the pull was there but like you were drawn maybe it was nudges from things that your parents said when you were young or maybe it's just a collection of all the little interests you had in that culture that brought you there and or or just friends that you've made, um, or negative experiences you've had, then there's an escapism element from one to another to see if there's more opportunities or um, more resonant, more connections and elsewhere. I don't think I'm unique in this at all. I think as we get older, our ability to empathize, I hope, like, like I genuinely hope that our most people begin to empathize more with individuals from different cultures and different backgrounds, but then also different generations. There's like a temporal element then there's a cultural sort of expansion and then the depth of, a, of an individual. So there's more like the EQ sort of just empathizing with people because you have gone through the experience of parenthood or the death of a family member or, you know, all these things that allow you to really empathize with, with humans. And so I hope that by my, you know, journey of growing, I hope growing circle of empathy continues and I and I can I can have a very different perspective that I have now, um, you know, in ten years or twenty years, and and yeah, it's it's been it's just been really interesting. I could not have told you I'd be thinking the way that I am, living where I am, doing what I'm doing now. You know, if you asked me ten years ago, yeah. it would be unbelievable. I mean, that's the beauty of life in general, right? You just never know. But I just had a thought, your kids are going to have the best story times. Like, <laughs> they're going to hear so much I hope about so. your experiences and like your background. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I think I was able to kind of pick out highlights. Most of my life is pretty, pretty normal. I'm reading books and playing video. Well, I was playing video games. And, and I think probably I'm entering a more boring part of my life now than I, than I was back <laughs> when I was backpacking the world and learning all these languages. But I, I hope that we can have a curious mindset and then also um, a way to mold the way we see the same things. So you can, two people can experience the same thing. You know, you can eat the same meal with exactly the same context and one person can choose. I, I think there's an element of choice. You can choose to see it as a utilitarian. Uh, I gotta get my food in, you know, or you can, you can also be like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, you know, look at where this food came from. It came from this farm from, you know, five different countries. 
Um, and it's somehow like this guy made it for me and it just took me, you know, 10 bucks and I'm able to get this on my, in front of me and like, you know, technology and, you know, trade and, uh, and, and history and culinary arts, like all these things have combined to create this experience for me. And, you know, if you have that mindset, you can be the most interesting person in the world with the most mundane experiences in life. Um, and so I hope, I hope that uh, I can be that as well. I don't, it doesn't have to be these big things that I've done, but just the no. general enthusiasm for life. Yeah. That can share with my kids. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation because I always knew that there was a lot to you, but I don't think we were ever given <laughs> the context or the opportunity to have a conversation like this. So I'm really glad that even though we're in completely different countries now, we were able to have this conversation. I got to learn so much more about you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity, Tao, and I really love what you're doing. I, I apologize to everyone that I, I probably talked way too much um so hopefully this you can cut it down in a way like, <laughs> it could given the amount of time i could see that happening um but yeah well, let's get in touch thank you as always for listening the next episode will be the last one for this year before i take a bit of a break over december and january i will be re-releasing some of the most popular episodes so far but now is the perfect time to get in touch with you or someone you know would like to join me on this show as a guest just send me a message via instagram or facebook at not your token minority podcast